Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction. Uh, my name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the prize, taking over hosting duties today from our usual host, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast talks to some of the world's leading writers and publishers to explore the world of non-fiction publishing, as well as providing behind-the-scenes insights into each year's prize journey. The winner of the 2021 Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced on the 16th of November and will receive a cheque for £50,000. For the last 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction has rewarded the very best in nonfiction writing, spanning fields as diverse as history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography, and the arts. In the run-up to the winner announcement next month, I'm in conversation with our six shortlisted authors, asking them about their lives, enthusiasms, and the reasons why they wrote their shortlisted book. Today, I'm joined by Harold Jana. Uh, Harold is a cultural journalist and former editor of the Berliner Zeitung. He's also an honorary professor of cultural journalism at the Berlin University of the Arts. He's here to speak about his book, Aftermath, Life in the Fallout of the Third Reich from 1945 to 1955, which has been brilliantly translated by Sean Whiteside. Harold, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great honor for me to to be here and uh, to be interviewed by you. Well, we're very lucky indeed. Thank you. So your your book is brilliantly written and translated, and it presents a highly original and unforgettable portrait of the decade in Germany immediately after the end of the Second World War. Can you um can you tell us where the where the idea for your book came from? What was the genesis of the idea for this book? By curiosity, I was curious. Um, um, how uh, the Germans come along with uh, the anarchy after the war, which uh, for which they are not made for, as anyone know. Um, and uh, I was curious how they come along with uh, their guilt, uh, their anxiety, and um, um, because there uh, were a lot of criminals uh, in the years after the war. Um, the Germans um, feared each other, uh, but on the other hand, they need each other. Uh, they are longing uh, for other persons. Um, many people had lost their families, um, their lovers, their men, uh, and now uh, they are looking uh, for new acquaintances for new friends um, and um, there was uh, a lust of li- a lust for life um, mm-hmm. uh, immediately after the war and I was very much astonished about that fact um, that uh, the misery uh, and joy are so m- close together yeah. Well, let's let's talk first of all then about the anarchy and the misery. Um, in 1945, the country was was shattered. It was it was it was broken. Can you you describe brilliantly in the book the sheer scale of the devastation? Can you can you encapsulate the scale of the devastation for us now? It was 
totally destroyed. Also, uh, uh, lots of cities were uh, destroyed uh, up to 70%. Cologne, for example, or Dresden uh, were uh, uh, full of uh, the rubble and debris. Uh, and uh, it takes took a lot of time uh, to clean up uh, it was unimaginable uh, immediately after the war how um, people could be ever uh, live again in these cities uh, and um, um, they began to um, to make provisional passes uh, through the debris uh, and uh, very soon uh, the first public traffic started and um, uh, the so-called uh, Trümmerfrauen, uh, the women uh, who had um, to clean up the cities, uh, worked very hard in, uh, in the fields of, uh, of debris and they uh, had to clean up uh, the stones uh, they even uh, without uh, without gloves, without gloves and uh, without uh, protection glasses, and so it was very dangerous work. And you write it your chapter on your chapter on just how to clear the rubble is is brilliant. I must say, right at the beginning of the book, this, you evoke the wreckage, the rubble, so so well. So sometime around this time, the, the concept of zero hour, Stunde Null, was born. Yeah. Can, can you explain this concept, please? What does it, what does it mean and where did it come from? Um, the concept was uh, to pretend that it is possible to start again from uh, point zero. Mm. Also, uh, to put everything on uh, zero and start again. So a, a great a great reset then the big reset yeah, a, a big reset mm -hmm. uh, to start like uh, a newborn child mm -hmm. also without guilt uh, that's included in this uh, concept um, and uh, in political terms uh, it's um, a false concept of course uh, it's an ideology um, and. Um, because uh, it is impossible uh, to start um, f with a reset. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one reason of the concept of, of the talk uh, on our uh, zero was um, uh, to, um, uh, what did, um, to... To, to ma sort of manage, manage the guilt, I suppose. Yes, yes, uh, to deny uh, the guilt. No? Or, uh, on the other hand, um, this reset had um, a special plausibility and evidence in um, the experience of the individuals um, mm. because uh, everything was totally destroyed. Uh, everything was uh, responsible only for himself uh, or for the family. There was no public administration. Uh, 
there was no one who uh, was able to protect the people and uh, it was a very wild atmosphere and uh, the the kind of um, social life uh, had uh, to begin um, totally from the beginning and uh, in so far it is in the um, experiences of the individuals uh, it's um, a conclusive concept the zero hour so the, the, so it it, it it so the concept makes emotional sense because of the sort of because of the apocalyptic nature of that time was this concept of zero hour did it come from the top downwards or did it come up from the streets from the bottom upwards or did, was or was it both just out of interest it came up uh, from the intellectuals from uh, the uh, from the authors writers the poets uh, and it comes up from the politicians, of course, um, uh, because uh, it, is, it was an ideal concept uh, to um, create a new society without uh, looking back, mm-hmm. to create um, the illusion that it is possible um, to make, uh, to create... Um, a society without all the questions left from the past. Mm-hmm. And so this was a, there was an element of false consciousness in all of this. And, and one, one, one aspect of that false consciousness was this narrative about the victimhood of Germans themselves in this, in this narrative. Um, so the, the idea, as you show brilliantly, the idea was born quite quickly that the Germans themselves were victims. Um, what were they? What did they see themselves as victims of, and and what what was the purpose of this narrative? This was it. It was a psychological coping mechanism. You say, I think, is that right? Yeah, oh, oh, uh, um, a very important purpose is, of course, uh, to deny uh, the real victims. The real victims vanished in the background, uh, and um, um, because the Germans uh, saw themselves as uh, the first victims of Hitler, even those um, who had uh, praised Hitler saw themselves now as um, his victims. Uh, that it is um, grotesque on one hand, on the other, uh, it had um, special evidence uh, in the last period of the war. Um, at first, uh, the bombing, the bombings of the cities were in fact um, very cruel, and um, um, there was a lot of uh, civilian victims uh, and. On the other hand, the NS regime um, showed uh, his uh, genuine face in the last months of uh, the war. The SS uh, pressed uh, children and grandfathers um, into arms and sent them to the front line. uh, And who was not willing, uh, was shot and killed. and. Um, in these last days, uh, there was um, uh, uh, 
a great difference and split between um, the real Nazis and the broad mass of uh, Germans. Um, but it is uh, also the very, very last period, the very last days of war. Yeah. And so uh, 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 at that moment, in those last, in those end of days, um, even ordinary Germans exper- could experience the barbarism of Nazism then, I guess. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the most shocking things for this book, for me, who was, I'm born in 1968, um, was the scale of the denial in relation to the Holocaust in, in this period. Um, tell us a little more about that. I mean, it, it's, it, it's um, you know, Hannah Arendt talked about deep-seated, stubborn and sometimes brutal refusal to confront what had happened. What was going on at that time then? At first, very important is um, the struggle um, for life, the struggle against mm. uh, hunger uh, and, and and the cold. And if you have to fight uh, for for the life, there is no room to uh, to think about uh, <coughs> the past uh-huh. or to think about uh, <coughs> your guilt. Um, uh, in so far. Uh, I'm speaking about uh, the blessing of uh, of terror, the mm-hmm. blessing of of hunger uh, and and fear, because um, uh, it makes it make it possible uh, that you don't need to um, reflect your enormous, tremendous guilt, and. Um, you can uh, really um, feel as as a victim, and uh, you are not uh, uh, you you have not to think about uh, the Holocaust and uh, the murderers and uh, the um, or the other uh, crimes uh, at uh, the Eastern Front and so. Um, that's um, for me. It was um, a shocking thing how uh, rigidly uh, the Germans uh, weren't willing to think about uh, the Holocaust and the murdered Jews. Um, and then I understood how important is uh, the role of the existence of children. Uh, I think if you have um, to educate children, it is necessary to pretend that you uh, didn't lost uh, the moral integrity. You need to tell them what's uh, uh, wrong uh, and uh, what's right. Um, you have to pretend uh, to be a moral, integral person. And uh, in this respect, um, it is uh, necessary to repress uh, your guilt and your responsibility for uh, all these unimaginable crimes. And even during, there was surprisingly little interest in the Nuremberg trials when they were going on as well, weren't they? Uh, they, I think at one point you say that they were widely perceived to be victors' justice. It, that was stru- that was interesting to me as well. Yeah, there were there were uh, um, 
a really strange and rude attitude. Um, uh, hung, hang, hung them up was uh, the common attitude. Make no much words, hung them up. Uh, and uh, they don't want uh, to talk about the responsibility and about the guilt of the broad mass of uh, of um, um, the Germans, uh, the broad mass of a little and not so little helpers. They mm. want to talk about the forty, sixty, seven. Not more than hundred uh, big Nazi leaders. Mm. Uh, they don't want to make much words, but um, hang them up, kill mm. them, and uh, and then uh, enjoy your peace. Uh, that was the German attitude. And how? When did that attitude begin to change? How was that that armor penetrated? Um, but that protective armor, when did it start to break down? Um, it changed during the 60s. Right. Um, it changed uh, during uh, the anti-authoritarian rebellion of the youth, of mm-hmm. uh, the, the student movement and so, and their um, intellectual combatants, their uh, intellectual comrades like the author Peter Weiss, uh, it changed with the uh, Auschwitz process, uh, the Auschwitz trial, uh, and and so on. And um, it was um, not easy for um, the children of this generation because this generation was not easy to to love, not easy mm-hmm. to be loved, and. Um, even if and although they are mm, fine parents in um, uh, very in many respects, um, it was not easy to to love these parents because uh, if you, as a young child, see uh, all these um, cruel photo documents from the concentration camps mm. uh, and you asked themselves uh, what your parents um, have done during this time uh, it is really shocking for uh, for young people mm. uh, who want to love uh, their parents and uh, I think uh, uh, in Germany uh, the conflict um, between uh, the older and the younger generation, which was worldwide uh, during uh, the 60s, was nowhere so ruthless, so hard, uh, like in Germany. Well, absolutely. Uh, fasc- fascinating. And um, yes, and I, I was thinking about the Red Army faction and the nature of the nature of the, that seventies terrorism in in the context of that really interesting. Um, it wasn't until nineteen sixty nine, in fact, was it with uh, nineteen seventy one with Willy Brandt's social democratic government that 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 some of the institutions were fully denazified. Is that right, or have I got that wrong? Uh, the um, full, uh, please. Uh, well, so, in- there, there were quite a lot of old Nazis still around in the judiciary and in public life, weren't they? Right up until the late sixties, I think, until until the Brandt government came along. 
Yes, and uh, also in, in, in these days, um, there were a lot of uh, Nazi uh, leaders and uh, in, in, in the uh, official positions, especially at the universities. Mm. Uh, mm. We had um, a lot of uh, former Nazi thinkers uh, in the universities um, and... Um, Uh, they were uh, there until uh, um, they retired uh, often. Mm. So let's go back to the period, the decade of your book. I mean, there was a sh there was a tremendous shortage of men at that time as well, weren't there? Because Germans were scattered all over the place. Um, tell us a little bit about that, if you can, and tell us a bit more about Ver uh, Veronica Dankeschön, please. Veronika, Dankeschön. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's of course uh, a very important subject for the democratization of uh, Germany, I think. Uh, there was a shortage of men, of course, because uh, lots of them uh, were dead. Uh, lots of them were uh, still um, in uh, war prisoner camps uh, and so on. And um, the a uh, woman uh, had uh, during the last months of the war and uh, in the months in the post-war time learned that the um, city can be run without men uh, and there was um, a type of forced emancipation emancipation yes and uh, liberalization of women Uh, and they were very um, proud, very self-confident, and uh, they did um, work together uh, with their children uh, in close survival teams. Uh, they had to organize food and um, wood uh, for heating, uh, they uh, had to steal, uh, and they were close together. Um, the, <clears throat> the, uh, the children, uh, <clears throat> uh, the woman made the plants, the mothers made the plants, and uh, the uh, children uh, went on tour to organize and to steal, uh, because uh, all uh, The houses for orphans was full, and uh, it was no danger that uh, someone would uh, uh, keep the um, captured children overnight. So it was not very dangerous for mm -hmm. them. And uh, in these um, very intimate teams between cooperative teams between the children, the mothers, uh, many men came back from the war and want to have back their old uh, leadership, their old roles. Mm. And um, uh, of course, the children uh, doesn't want it and uh, the woman either. And um, on the other hand, uh, the Men were very depressed. They were in a um, uh, miserable uh, state. They uh, uh, um, couldn't work very much. So um, it was there was there were not a big help for uh, <laughs> their woman. Mm. 
and in Sufara, uh, there was a huge number of divorces uh, at that time. The women very, very, um, were um, very much disappointed by these men um, and looking for others. And of course, they are looking for uh, the Allies, the British and uh, the American soldiers. Uh, and I think they are looking for them not only uh, because of the cigarettes and uh, the perfumes, um, but um, they are looking for a new way of life. Mm. Um, the British and American soldiers represent another form of culture, of, of everyday culture, another form of freedom. Um, they, another form of coolness. Uh, so, so these relationships, this was not just opportunism then, this was something else. No, it is, uh, it is a cultural interest. It's, uh -huh. it's a form uh, of cultural curiosity. Uh, and um, they open, the, these women open uh, their mind. Uh, they want uh, to make another experience. They want uh, to... Uh, come out of uh, the German narrowness, narrowness. and uh, um, yeah, it's it, it was um, a cultural curiosity. <laughs> and there were two. I, I, did I read that there were two hundred thousand babies uh, fathered by Allied soldiers in that time as well, which is a lot. Yes, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> and uh, we are speaking in political terms um, about the German way to the West. Uh, that means uh, the uh, change of uh, the traditional mentality uh, into a more westernized concept. And I think... Uh, uh, in a very important part, responsible for uh, uh, this way to the West were uh, these women. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Let's talk. We're, let's talk a little about the uh, economic miracle, the Germans, the the miracle of German economic reconstruction in West Germany, in particular, but in in both Germanys. Um, you show very well that the roots of the, the roots of the economic miracle in the post-war years, some of those roots are found in this in this period and indeed during the war. Um, tell us a little bit about about Volkswagen's uh, san the sanitization of Volkswagen's history, for example. Uh, the uh, Volkswagen was sanitized under uh, uh, British command. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Um, the first Volkswagen were a need uh, for uh, the British Army and the British Post. Uh, and um, the, uh, there was a British commander who loved those cars and um, uh, who uh, loved the factory. And he done very much uh, to... Uh, to bring up uh, Volkswagen and Wolfsburg. Uh, Volks, uh, Wolfsburg was um, a very lousy place, uh, miserable place, uh, depressing. Uh, mm -hmm. It was um, a former uh, forced laborer camp um, because the Volkswagen were built by uh, forced laborers. Uh, 
um, under cruel conditions and uh, uh, the British uh, tries to uh, change it and, uh, and and make out of uh, to make Volkswagen to change it into a, a better uh, more human um, production system um, yeah, and uh, they gave it uh, two years later uh, back into German hands. And um, yes, it was a story of huge success. This is a, it's a remarkable book and it, it is wonderfully readable. Um, and I love, I love the structure of it. The structure is a surprise because the chapters are intensely, ser- uh, intensely thematic and full of serendipity. Can you tell us about why you decided on this structure? How did? Why did you decide to structure the book by themes? Uh, and how did you choose your themes? Uh, I think very important is to concentrate uh, on some aspects uh, and uh, um, dive uh, deeply uh, into um, special subjects, mm. into... Uh, yeah, the um, the feelings, the public feelings, the mood, uh, and um, I was um, uh, keen to understand um, uh, in the public moods the emotions uh, which come before a manifest political conviction. Uh, my interest is to understand how. Um, uh, a political conviction arise out of um, uh, moods, mentalities, emotions, um, mm. and so on, and attitudes. Um, I think uh, the change uh, of Germany into uh, democratic society was not uh, mainly um, a thing of uh, rationalism, of, of, of uh, political talking in a manifest way, of reading uh, uh, the programs of political parties and so on. Um, and I think um, um, the political attitude um, developed uh, in the everyday life. Very important, for example, was the black market. Mm. Uh, in the, there you learn uh, the relativity of uh, values. Uh, you learn uh, human skepticism and so on. Uh, and this was very important um, for the Germans to uh, to deal, for example, um, on a common market with uh, their former enemies, with the occupiers and uh, the victors. I, I was wondering how your book had been received in, in Germany. Um, I know it's been a huge bestseller in Germany, for which congratulations, but you know, you are a journalist, and therefore you have just arrived in the in the territory of professional historians. Um, have you have you experienced any jealousy, for example? Yeah, a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit, of course. Uh, very elegant, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the other hand, there are some historians who were very impressed by the book, and uh, the first. 
uh, review uh, appeared in the German uh, in the Süddeutsche Zeitung mm-hmm. written by uh, the famous uh, German historian uh, Frank Bösch mm-hmm. and uh, this was uh, a kind of um, checked and passed by an official historian <laughs> and this was very important for uh, the uh, reception later on of course into the professional circles so he, he, ga- he gave you the green light then he gave you the green light to go yeah exactly <laughs> uh, he gave me the green light yes and um, in um, the broader sense uh, I think um, for many people uh, I met during my um, my readings um, for many people this book is a kind of eye-opener. They understand more um, their parents than before. Um, In many German families after the war, there was a lack of um, um, uh, a lack of love. Uh, Many mothers and uh, especially fathers weren't able to hudge their children and so on and Mm. Um, there was a cold atmosphere mm. very often. And after this book, uh, many readers understand more why. <laughs> and uh, so they uh, changed their relationships uh, to their parents a bit. Um, I, I only have a couple of other questions. Tell, tell us a little, we only have time rather for a couple of other questions. Tell us a little about the tr- the transformation of your book from German to English. Did you make did you make many changes and and how was it to work with uh, Sean Whiteside who's a very distinguished translator? Yeah, Sean Whiteside is a wonderful translator. That was a very um, good uh, experience for me. Um, uh, very good cooperation, and um, he uh, has a lot of questions, of course, uh, and um, uh, some. Uh, the crucial point is um, if I uh, quote from sources uh, from Great Britain, for example, mm. um, which were translated uh, into German before, I used the German um, <laughs> translation. And of course, uh, Sean had to check the British original. And in some cases, there were some very uh, interesting differences. And <laughs> then we had to talk about it and uh, to change it, of course. And, and I, I think the last question we've got time for, I mean, what what's, what's the future for German memory culture, do you think? As you look ahead for the next two or three decades, how do you see the future for memory culture in Germany? Hmm. Difficult question, I know. Very difficult. I would be glad uh, if I could answer it <laughs> because I'm not a prophet, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm then rather more historian. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's very that's that's unimaginable for me. I, I um, the next generation will feel a special. Uh, responsibility for uh, for this past. Um, I think um, I'm I'm in good hope uh, the, that um, 
the uh, Nazi crimes never will be forgotten in mm. Germany. Never. Well, there is a big, there is a great reckoning with the past all over the world, isn't there? In Britain and in America, we we have a big. I mean, the British Empire is not the same by any means as the Nazi regime, but it also had its own crimes. Um, and there's there is a continual reckoning with that, and the same in the United States with the past. I think it's a it's encourage it's an encouraging process, perhaps in that regard. Yes, I think so. I think so. It is uh, uh, an enormous interest in uh, uh, history and uh, especially in uh, uh, the dark sides of history and yeah. uh, an enormous interest to understand uh, uh, how it could happen. And um, my uh, my aim was. Uh, to to judge not only in uh, in moral uh, aspects but uh, to to explore uh, the uh, yeah the everyday aspects of these uh, crime regime. Mm-hmm. That I'm afraid is all we have time for on this episode. Thank you so much again, uh, Harold, for. Uh, joining us and for your wonderful conversation we're very very grateful best of luck in the last stage of the competition thank you again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support for this podcast do please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize where, where you'll get all the latest on future episodes of our podcast and news regarding the prize you can also sign up for our newsletter through the website, and you'll get updates straight into your email inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction rewards excellence in nonfiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world to the world. The winner of the prize this year will be, as I said at the top of the programme, announced on the 16th of November. Join us next time when we'll be in conversation with another one of our shortlist authors. Until then, thanks for listening and see you again. Bye bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.